Welcome to the As For Football Army Football Show. The Army Football Show is an insider's guide for cadets, old grads, and college football fans to follow the Army team throughout their season as they seek to beat Navy and claim the Commander-in-Chief's trophy. This week's Army Football Show is a special Thunder Run edition. We are honoring the dog-faced soldiers of the 3rd Infantry Division, Rock of the Mar. Don't forget to follow us on all social media platforms, at As For Football, or sign up for our mailing list at asforfootball.com slash subscribe. Go Army, beat Navy. Welcome back, everyone, to the As For Football Army Football Show. We've got a special edition today. So for those of you that don't know or didn't catch the advertising or anything that we talked about on the other show, this is a opportunity to talk about the Thunder Run. And one of the craziest parts about the last 20, 25 years of military service for, for some of us, uh, we actually got to be a part of history and write some of it, you know? And so that's an interesting part of uh, being an academy graduate and then serving afterwards. And if you haven't served in the military or you got out early, you still know somebody that did, you know? And so this is a great opportunity for us to talk to Ray. Ray is a fan of the show. And uh, we won't steal any of Dano's thunder because I know he's going to do an introduction to him. But uh, I'm your host, Rob in Fayetteville, North Carolina. You got Dano calling out of coastal Connecticut, and I'm sure Ray will tell us more about where he is right now uh, once we get a little bit further into the interview. But without further ado, let's talk about uh, our sponsor, Craig Oxane. All right. If you've listened to Ask for Football for more than one episode, you know that uh, Craig Oxane is a sponsor on the Ask for Football, Army Football Show, and the College Football Roundtable. He's a graduate of the class of 1994. He can lend in all 50 states. He's based out of Chicago and has one of the biggest VA lenders in the country. He has super competitive rates, and Craig is going to give you the best deal that he possibly can. And think about it from this perspective. With inflation and everything else that's going on in the market, everybody needs to save as many dollars as they can because your dollar does not go as far as it did last year. So... The whole mortgage process is super confusing with interest rates moving all over the place. It's not the time to deal with uh, some big box store or somebody that's just trying to make a buck off of you. Deal with somebody that you actually can get to know and actually cares about you as a as a customer. You know, not a call center, not some random big box bank or mindless website. This is exactly how the net, the West Point network functions. Greg is helping us stay in business here at Ask for Football, and we're helping you find a better deal on a mortgage by introducing you to the very man that you need to meet. Plus, Craig doesn't charge lender fees for veterans. That's a huge savings, about $1,300. Who could use $1,300 going into the holiday season? If you can't, there's probably something wrong with you or you are living a lifestyle that I need some pointers on so I could take advantage of those investment tips as well. Uh, just keep in mind, his name's Craig Oxane, VP of Residential Lending. Check him out. The link is on our website. All you have to do is click on the tab, fill out a quick questionnaire, and... Craig will be back with you in a few moments. And here's the thing about Craig, it, like he personally takes the calls. It's not some secretary or some random person that uh, works for the organization. It's Craig. <laughs> and so that's helpful. You know, so you, you know, put a name with the face. You get to see his picture on the, the website every time, but then you can actually have a conversation with that person and get a pretty square deal on refinancing or purchasing a home for the first time. And if you're a first time home buyer, even scarier than just a refinance because I think they add like four and a half inches of paper just for a new home buyer, particularly those who are interested in uh, using your VA loan for the first time. But uh, I'll pause there and pass it over to Dan to introduce our guest today, Ray. So Ray, man, welcome to the show. 
Let me just say before we get started that if it was up to the Army coaching staff, we would have grads on more often and talk about like how successful and awesome you are. So this is like a good opportunity in that sense. But it's also like we're not going to sugarcoat it. You went to war with the 3rd Infantry Division. Like that is not – that's the only way to put it. Like that's just the plain English. So um, for those of you that don't know, Ray and I have known each other a long time. We met during Beast Barracks. Setting up this interview, we were like talking about it, trying to figure out exactly where we met. I think it was out at Lake Frederick. I want to say that I met you and Tanya Estes the same day. Um, we had a bunch of classes together, Plebeer. I could have sworn you were a history major, but that was not correct. So anyway, why don't you set the record straight for us? Yeah, I mean, Dan, so first off, Dan, Rob, thanks so much for having me on. Uh, great privilege to be back on and, you know, proud to be a, a member of the Firsty Club and love what you what you guys do. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it was uh, Lake Frederick. I think, you know, in Beast, your your squad and your platoon are like your whole world. And maybe yeah. you like take notice of who's in your company. So I'm guessing we had like a t adjacent shelter half lines or something like that. <laughs> you know, along the line. That's, that sounds right to me. So uh, you were in one of the Delta companies to start, I know, but um, what companies were you in? Tell, tell us about your majors, all that top line stuff. Yeah, so I started in D4, uh, spent two years in D4 and then scrambled into A3. So I went from the fifth floor of the 55th division, which is yep. a fantastic place when you're at Cleve, you know, farthest, at that time, farthest room away from Central Guard Room. Uh, into the first floor of Eisenhower Barracks, which is a brilliant place to be when you're a cow and a firsty and you're just looking to roll out of bed and get into formation. I mean, my my formation was literally like 50 meters from the front door of my room. It was it was fantastic. Oh man, that's unbelievable. Yeah. So two great companies, uh, two great sets of company mates. It's very lucky in that respect. Um, I was a Russian and German major uh, as a double language major uh, and had a had a great time on that was a computer science engineering track back when that was a thing. I, I, that's not anymore. Um, in terms of extracurricular stuff, right, because everybody's got to have yep. got to have some kind of extracurricular stuff at West Point or you'll go crazy. You'll lose your mind. Uh, and for me, it was the theater arts guild, uh, the folks who work backstage at Eisenhower Hall and mm -hmm. at that time helped load in and run the shows. Actually met my future wife there. Um, after she hit me with a two by four, but you know, that's okay. <laughs> what get women there are built a little differently. Uh, they, they go after what they want. Uh, and I also had the privilege of being a company ring and crest rep, you know, so oh, they're wow. the shadow mafia who like put together your crest design and all that. And, and that was, that was really fascinating. So 95ers, uh, if you hate the double Eagle on our crest, uh, Hey, I'm one of the people you can blame because I was part of the crew that uh, that helped put that together. I've got no time for that, man. That double eagle is iconic. I, I'm there. Yeah. I, I sets it apart, man. You can tell our crest from anybody else out there. I love uh, it. You know, some people are gonna. So, what brought you to West Point? Because I know you had some other options. We talked about this when you were reading through my memoir. You know how similar that was. So, just tell that story a little bit. Yeah, well, so let's say up front, I was definitely not a Division One athlete being recruited. So let's be very clear that our paths kind of diverged in that respect. Uh, I sure. definitely, I knew I wanted to be an Army officer. Uh, I, as the son of two of two Army officers, both Army Medical Corps, um, very proud of the fact that my mother was the first female intern in the Army Medical Department. Oh, uh, and still very proud of her to this day for that. Um, so I knew I wanted to be an Army officer. I really had a sense that. 
I had had a great life as an army brat and wanted to give back. And so I, I actually only applied to three schools. I applied to army, UVA, university of Virginia and, uh, Norwich. And, and um, cause, cause those three, so my dad was a Virginia grad, um, and, you know, spoke very highly of it. And, and I, you know, enjoyed kind of what the Wahoos bring and, uh, heard great things about Norwich and, and got to see some of what they did. And then of course, you know, West Point being West Point and was really kind of, got into all three and was really kind of struggling about where I wanted to go. Um, and my father told me something that really stuck with me. He said, if you go to ROTC at UVA with a fair amount of effort, you'll be able to be at kind of the head of the pack there, but you're going to be at the head of a relatively small pack, right? And it's going to be a relatively small kind of peer group. He said, you go to West Point, you're going to have to work your ass off just to be in kind of the middle of the pack. Hmm. But it's going to be a big pack and you're yeah. going to, you know, have a lot of folks to draw from. So he said it really boils down to what you want to be, right? Who you want to be with. And that that really resonated with me. And I think that was ultimately what what sold me on coming to West Point. Yeah, I got to say the hardest part of the transition for me from, you know, being a high school hero to a West Point zero is you're used to being the smartest, most athletic person that you know. Right. I'm, I'm every time I go to anything in high school, I'm the best person that they have. And then you go to West Point and all of your classmates have had that experience. And it, in over time, it's like the greatest blessing of my life. Right. I have all of these great friends that I love that I have more in common with than anybody else on the planet. But in the moment, in those first six or eight weeks, like it's a very hard transition. So, all right. Okay, so I got, absolutely. yeah. So I've got our first tough question. You branched, or you uh, you majored two major two languages, Russian and German. Obviously, you should have gone directly into the CIA, perhaps stopping briefly in military intelligence. Um, you you know they've got that whole Monterey overlooking the water, learning a language thing, and yet you wind up in combat aviation. Like, hit your head. I mean, how'd that happen? No, I so I knew that I wanted to be an army aviator even before I knew where I wanted to, to go to college. I knew okay. I wanted to fly in the Army. And certainly Infantry Week uh, during Buckner, when I was that, I was like, yeah, this this sucks. I'm, I'm definitely not doing this. Um, Look at Rob steaming over there. Yeah, yeah. No, and Rob's like, it's not, no, whatever. It's not for it's not for everybody. It is it is, it, it is a choice. Definitely not for me, Rob. So I, I, and I embrace No, I knew I wanted to fly. I loved aviation. Um, and I knew I wanted to fly rotary wing. I wasn't interested mm-hmm. in flying jets like at Air Force or Navy. I wasn't interested in something where I was going to be the limiting factor in the airframe. That that didn't really uh, uh, appeal to me. And and I'll confess that I think this is one of the great things about West Point is that you can choose to major in something and not have it worry, not worry about, yeah. oh, this is going to determine what my career path was, right? Yeah. What a language major went out and flew helicopters, right? Yeah. Not necessarily a linkage there, but I think that's that's one of the beautiful things about it. Setting aside the whole whether humanities majors are employable or not, I mean, that's <laughs> that's nonsense, but we're not going to get into that. Um, Wait, but I love that West Point really encourages people to major in things that they love and they're passionate about. And I did. I loved the Russian language, the German language. I love pursuing both uh, and still have that career path. It, it is kind of funny that... I chose Russian as a major in August of 91, and in December of 91, the Soviet Union went poof, 
And I thought oh. I had made like the worst decision possible. I was like, my God, what have I done? But in fact, both of those languages have actually served me well over the years. I've gotten to do things as a result of speaking both of them that other folks just didn't get to do. Dude, that's like quadruply ironic. And uh, let me just tell you, my plan was to go and major in history and go to law school. And that was my plan all the way up until first year when I got that mandatory law class, which I freaking loathed. And I was literally, I had like a whole existential crisis, like, ah, shit, what am I going to do? Like, I am a long way into this. I, I can't just switch. If it hadn't been for the Army, I'd be teaching history in some ways, in some place in some high school, which which is fine. But um, yeah, that's my next book is what you major in versus what you do with your life, for sure. So, okay, so the weird thing about aviation is you go to learn to fly helicopters. There is no guarantee, like, within that frame, you can wind up being the equivalent of a bus driver or a taxi driver or a cab scout. Like, these are not the same jobs. The only thing it has in common is that, you know, you've got the whirly bird up above you. So how hard was it to get Kiowa's? Did you want to go cab? Like, how'd that sort of play itself out? Yeah, so this whole thing was really wild. I originally wanted to go attack aviation. I had done okay. my cadet troop leader time, troop leader training time uh, in an attack battalion in Korea. And oh, love, wow. just had a wow. blast. Yeah, had an absolute blast with you. I, I had the most staunch, thirsty summer you can imagine. I spent three weeks in Russia and then a month and a half in Korea. It was, it was ridiculous. <laughs> that sounds awesome. Yeah. Um, and, and so going into flight school, I, I was pretty set that I wanted to be uh, an attack driver. That, that okay. was what I wanted to do. And, um, and and at the time, not everybody was even getting what we called an advanced aircraft transition, which meant yeah, I remember that. Uh, Blackhawks. You know, some folks just got stuck with the old Vietnam era Huey or 58 Alpha Charlie and hey, you just sucked it up until, you know, the, the Army got some money to put you in an advanced aircraft. Uh, so I put my dream sheet of AH-64, AH-1, OH-58D, and then I put at the bottom of the sheet and nothing else. Looking back on it was totally insane, right? Just, <laughs> just dumb. Um, but uh, it worked out for me. I missed getting the last AH-1, the last Cobra flight school slot in the Army by two flight school slots. I mean, my man, that was actually in your favor. If you'd gotten that transition, you would have had to go right back to school. Yeah, eventually, right? And so oh. it would have been cool to fly the uh, yeah. I did end up getting uh, 58Ds, and, and I loved it. I, I yeah. immediately resonated with the, the cavalry mission set, with the reconnaissance mission set. Yeah. And I knew probably two weeks into the aircraft transition, I was like, yeah, this, this is where I'm supposed to be. Okay, so where did you go first? So first stop was 10th Mountain Division. Uh, oh, wow. Northern Chosen of Northern New York. Yeah. Uh, and the crazy thing was at that time in the light divisions, there were no Apaches in the light divisions. The only thing that was there was Kiowas uh, and Blackhawks. There weren't even any Chinooks either. And so uh, the Kiowas were in both the Cav Squadron and the Attack Battalion. So uh, my first assignment, I was actually in the Attack Battalion up there. So we were a pure... Uh, Kiowa unit, uh, spent 14 months as an attack platoon leader, uh, and then 28 months as a battalion S4. 
um, which was actually real. I know everybody right that to nuts, man. Ooh, and going, ooh, I can't believe that I didn't see you at Fordham Business School. I mean, yeah, I would say I loved it. I loved the logistics mission set. I okay. loved the problem solving aspect of it. And candidly, I was a pretty mediocre platoon leader. And okay. so doing something other than just straight tactics was was really appealing to me. And so okay. we did a couple joint readiness training center rotations at lovely Fort Polk, now Fort Johnson. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, I'm with, I'm with uh, Boo. Uh, and then, um, uh, and then a nine month peacekeeping rotation in Bosnia. Wow. Okay. So go to the career course. They send you to Fort Stewart, which I would pick over the 10th mountain division every day and twice, twice on Sunday. Um, nine 11 happens. And so when I was there, the third ID, so just, I don't know how many folks know this or don't, but the 3rd Infantry Division is the heavy division of the 18th Airborne Corps. So for me, as a tank platoon leader, you go there and it's like, it's a heavy division, but you're on two-hour recall. And if something happens, theoretically, you're going to go get your stuff and go home. I mean, and go to to war. So, and I, and I remember talking to my thesis advisor about this back when we were in school, as he deployed to the invasion of Panama, he said he'd done a million rapid deployment type drills. And then one day, completely out of the blue, they go, hey, go home, get all your stuff and come right back. We're going to Panama. And, you know, he's floored. So he goes, buys his wife a set of flowers because she's not home and he's only got a half an hour. And then he's gone for a freaking year. So tell me, like, obviously after 9-11, the mindset of the, of the military changed. But at the same time, like the 3rd Infantry Division does not just jump. You know, it's... It's got a long tail, like that's a big unit. So, talk to me about how that sort of worked. Yeah. So, uh, so like you said, you know, the division for many years before 9/11 had had the RDF, the ra the Rapid Deployment Force, and that's a that's a mechanized company team that can get loaded on planes and get flown away. And um, and the whole division really has this kind of expeditionary mindset now. Expeditionary means something different in the 3rd Infantry Division vice in the 82nd, right? In the 82nd, expeditionary is get your ass down to the airfield, get on a plane, and get gone. At 3ID, it's, hey, get your crap on the railhead. It's yep. going to the Port of Savannah, and it's getting on a boat. Um, but but it's still that forward-leaning, hey, you're part of America's contingency corps, and, and you're, you're yeah. going to be ready to move. I mean, um, when I was there, we must have packed our stuff into, into the pallets like— three, four times. And at least twice of those, it wasn't a drill. It was, okay, we're going to go and this is going to be a thing. And then, you know, you sit there like that for a week and then, oh, I can put everything back. So anyway, go ahead. Yeah. And so, and so it's funny because that played out on kind of a much larger scale than post 9-11, somebody at some level decided that there needed to be kind of a more robust force package than the rapid deployment force. And so this was called the Central Command Response Force. And uh, 3ID was tasked for it, and um, among the force package, to this day, I still don't know, like, everything that was in that force package, but one part of it was one troop, eight aircraft of Kyle Warriors, and maintenance support. Yeah. Well, the challenge of that is that, and by the way, so at this time, I was the maintenance troop commander in the Heavy Cav Squadron in 3-7 Cav, um, so I was responsible for all the maintenance. Okay. Was this after a line uh, line troop 
command or no, that you just went straight into that. Okay. No, went straight into the maintenance command. So at that time, and I think this is still mostly the case, there was a specific officer track for um, officers who wanted to specialize on the maintenance and aviation logistics side oh, that's, okay. uh, of aviation. So we were 15 deltas as opposed to 15 bravos. And I think that's still a thing, although I'm not sure. But but it basically meant that we would always do maintenance commands yeah. rather than tactical commands. And and like I said, that appealed to me because yeah. I I was not a tactical high performer and, and I wanted to serve someplace where, I, you know, I could be at my best and really kind of serve sure. myself. Absolutely. Um, so I was the, so I was the maintenance troop commander. And so the, you know, so the challenge is when you're planning a force package for eight aircraft, well, you got 16 aircraft that you support. So how do you make, how do you divvy up that force package mm -hmm. to send stuff forward, but also support that eight aircraft back there? And what I'm very rapidly discovered was that my NCOs were going to make the decisions about things like, uh, Hey, we're going to send this piece of equipment forward. This is going to go back. Here's how we're going to divvy it up. But it was really my responsibility as the commander to think about the people side of it and say, you know, beyond uh, the MOSs, yeah, we want this number, but hey, what's the personality mix that I want in kind of the forward package versus the rear package? How do I want to build that team? How do I want to structure that team? So that was a really kind of fascinating whole battle yeah. calculus that went into that and how that was going to work. So... Where is Mindy in all of this? Because you're married, this this is an ongoing thing, and you know part of this division may go. It may or may not include her. I don't even know if she was in the third ID. So what's going on with your family life at this point? Yeah. So here's so you know the other thing. My wife also a West Point graduate, class of '96, uh, branched AG. Um, when I started uh, troop command at Stewart, she was actually in company command in Korea. Uh, oh my goodness. Yeah, there was this whole bizarre thing where we were both going to go to Korea, and then the Army changed my assignment, but they refused to change hers. So she went to Korea, but it ended up being great because she walked right into a command in Korea. Like, who the hell does that? Who who walked into a command in Korea for 12 months in Korea, in command, and then comes out? And that Wow, that is nuts. That is, that is, that is a dream. That yeah, definitely right. not happen Again, for me. Again, further proof that my wife is smarter than I am. Um, but, uh, but so when I came into command and for the first six months of my command, uh, my wife was in Korea in her own, wow. uh, and then she came back and joined, uh, the third social support battalion doing the AG and finance, uh, work that they do. Um, so yeah, she was not part of this force package. So we were already starting to have to think about, uh, okay, how are, you know, how are we going to manage this? Um, then she became pregnant with our son and yeah got even a little bit more complicated. Um, and so this, you, you know, you mentioned kind of the back and forth, uh, back and forth, and that's exactly what happened to us. We did an NTC rotation in April of 02. Um, throughout the summer, we got told, hey, get ready, you're going to go, oh, never mind. Not yeah. Okay, hey, get ready, you're going to go, oh, never mind. And so by the end of that, you're like, yeah, okay, man, whatever. I'll, I'll yeah. go when you tell me to go. And Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, then October 2002 rolls around and they say, okay, you're going to go. And I'm like, yeah, okay, beat Navy, whatever. Well, then the mill vans show up. Then yeah. the shipping containers show up. The yeah. Area. Yeah. And everybody knows when the shipping containers show up. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Now, I, I remember that too. We, uh, I was with my wife that at the time, Missy, my first wife, and we were at the mall and we're just in Savannah, you know, just at the mall. And all of a sudden, like, 
12 C-17s fly in to Hunter Army Airfield. And I was like, oh, no, somebody's going somewhere tomorrow. And damn if that isn't what happened. So anyway, Rob, man, uh, can you uh, do this read for us? Give us a chance yeah. to drink some beer. Yeah, catch a breath and drink some beer. So if you're a fan of Astro Football and you like the content that you're getting to see and hear, there are several ways that you can support the show. And one of the things that we're doing as far as uh, Army transitioning over to the American Athletic Conference next season is we're doing expanded coverage. And with that expanded coverage, it costs a little bit more money to hire on staff to, to do that. So you can always support us through Patreon. Patreon, go to patreon.com at Ask for Football to learn more. You also have some links on our website at the yearling level. You get to our weekly games and locks, which uh, Dan and I have not done very well this season. Uh, we had a couple of bad weeks. Yeah, we had a couple of bad weeks, but it's kind of uh, a peep into what we're watching uh, during the weekend. And for those guys that are degenerate gamblers, it may give you some insights that you hadn't been thinking of. Uh, at the Cal level, you get that plus our scouting report. The scouting report is going to change a little bit because the scouting report was more relevant when Army was independent. So it basically broke down the teams by quarter that you were going to see in the season. So first four games, middle four games, last four games. And then at the firsty level, you get to join the firsty club, which is our private face group. Uh, Facebook group for our top level patrons. And this is the best place to talk about army football and army and college football in general. Why? Because we're all super fans. We really try hard to keep it positive and it's a private group. So, you know, there's not going to be anybody uh, spreading your business out there. And if you have a, if you have a controversial take, the only people that will view that controversial take will be the folks in the group. Uh, first, these also get access to live recordings, which is what we're doing now. And the reality of it is, is we've uh, spent a lot of money in the past year to improve the show. We're now on StreamYard, which allows us to do these interactive uh, shows with the audience. We're using Podcastle AI to improve our sound quality, and we've got regular recording time so folks can join us live. And all of this costs money. This is why we need your support. So if you have any questions, go to patreon.com and look for Ask for Football. The other thing that you can do is always go to the website, and if you are on a budget... You can always go to the astrofootball.com website forward slash subscribe, click on that and subscribe for the newsletter. You'll get one email a week and that one email will provide you with all the week's content and you can keep up with Army Sports and Ask for Football that way as well. Dan, back to you. Thank you, man. All right. So again, going back to the mid to late 90s when I was at Third ID, Brigades were in and out of Kuwait like all the time. Yeah, I told you about the C-17s. Well, 1st Brigade deployed that time for six or eight months, and then they came back. And then, you know, probably like literally two weeks before I went to the career course, 2nd Brigade went over there, and they were over there for a cup of coffee. Like, I don't even think they were – they might have been might have been like four months. Like, it was not long. Um, so, okay, so now you're over in Kuwait, and this is not a thing that doesn't happen. Like, this happens all the time. At what point do you realize, oh no, this is this is on, this is happening? Yeah, I mean, so we we so originally so just with the the shipping tanner showing up in October, those we loaded, we were ready to go, and then we got turned off. So oh. I like I pulled dudes out of school, right? I had people who had relived yeah. like the school option. Yeah, yeah. Pulled them out of school and everything, got turned off, and then finally got turned back on again in December, January of, of uh two thousand three. We finally went. And so we're over there. Um, you know, it was different right from the start because because of this uh the Centrop the Centcom reaction force package, yeah. they had plussed me up with extra assets so that we could be our own little independent entity. So I had medics, 
I had oh, wow. crooks. I had my own little intermediate. I was I was the man who could be king, right? Yeah. I had my yeah. own little little fiefdom, and I was I was pretty happy for a couple of weeks there until you know the rest of the squadron showed up, and then it was you know back to business as normal. <laughs> um, and but I t- but right from the start, I don't think I ever really doubted that uh, that, that we weren't going north, right? It was, oh, really? It right from the start, I kind of looked at it as like, yeah, man. We're flowing a lot of people in, and this mm. isn't just going to be a, a sit here. Yeah. When they got that second brigade over there, you know, you get the first brigade, and it's like, okay, whatever, we're holding the border, yeah. But when they put the second one on the ground, it's like, oh, okay, this is this is a different deal. So, yeah, anyway, and and sorry. you know, for for us, I think the biggest thing was, you know, we originally flown and and went into uh, a brand new base camp that had been built up. It was Camp Udari at the time. Um, and when we got told, Hey, move out of Camp Udari into forward staging areas so that you can make room for the next division that's coming in. Cause the hundred and is coming in. I was like, Oh yeah, it's, it's on. <laughs> yeah, it's on. We're, we're, we're doing this. We're doing this. So how long did you sit in the desert? Like training? Yeah. Like, I don't, you know, I don't know what that consists of exactly. And I definitely don't know what that consists of for an air cab troop or a logistics cab troop. You know, like what is, you know, I'm on the, not the, I'm in the same unit, right. But definitely on the tank side of, of being a cavalry officer. Yeah. Yeah. So for my, you know, my lead elements, uh, that first air troop that came forward and then my maintenance package that went forward with them, which, which I was part of, uh, I was gonna, I was gonna lead from the front on this, um, for us, it was about uh, all told about sixty days in the desert before we crossed uh, before we crossed the border. Um, oh, wow! Squadron flowed in about yeah. It was I mean That's... not bad in terms of like when you look at like what Gulf War guys did and you know yeah. sat there for yeah. six months. Yeah, um, I yeah I got no complaints. And and again, the nice thing about uh, being a maintenance troop is. Hey, your job's the same no matter where you are, man. You're yeah. fixing, you're fueling, you're arming, yeah, you're making yeah, yeah. sure the aircraft are ready to go. And and those aircraft still had to fly, they still had to train. And so that was great because it kept my soldiers busy, right? And busy soldiers are soldiers that aren't out doing dumb shit. Somewhere. Yeah. So I, I little different question. You you've got the the deuce and a half and the five ton trucks, and they've got the the uh, machine gun mounts, the ring mounts on there which I have never mounted a machine gun on one of those rings. So you actually got to do this thing and shoot them. At what level, from scale of 1 to 10 being, 1 is we shouldn't even put these things up, and 10 being, oh, yeah, this was awesome. Like, how effective is this thing? Oh, it's fantastic. So I had, uh, I, and I was kind of special in this regard, because I had yeah. only Mark 19s in the squadron, right? No, I okay. launchers. I, my yeah. troop had the only ones in the squadron. And those things were fantastic, and they mounted perfectly on a ring mount. And the really crazy thing was, we actually didn't have ring mounts on our uh, on our vehicles back at home station. It just it wasn't a thing for whatever reason. I don't know why. Yeah. The ones the vehicles that we drew from Prepo all had. There they are. Yeah. And my guys got up and they're like, "Sir," especially when they got to like go out in gunnery with them. Yeah. Sir, this is awesome. I can- yeah, I was going to say, you did it, you know, 60 days. That surely includes a whole gunnery out there, right? We went, we got every single weapon system we had. Every That's awesome. One, at least once, in some cases, twice. And yeah, dudes love, dudes love that commanding position. And, yeah, yeah. You know, shooting that, they, they were all about it. All right. So we drive up, 
get in the fighting position right on the border, getting ready to cross the border. Any Anything there before we cross the line of departure in this story? Um, so the right before we, so we crossed the border uh, the 19th into the morning of the 20th. Uh, the, during the day on the 19th was the first set of scud attacks in. And of course, okay. everybody thought those were chems. So as soon as yeah. they were coming in, you know, we were already in MOP 2, so we already had the, right. you know, the suit on. And so mass, on, I mean, we must have, you know, masked and unmasked probably four times over the course of that day. Uh, yeah. And that just, that, you know, kind of tightened up everybody's sphincter and was like, okay, how about yeah. we get moving and get across the border because we're tired of being targeted. That's that literally was one of my worst nightmares was having to like be in mop four in the tank, you know, doing doing the thing like, no, thank you. This was yeah. this was the thing I did not want to do. And uh, I, I remember seeing that on the news at the time. And I was like, oh, Jesus, that's that looks awful. So. All right. So then when yeah. it's time to, to cross the border, um, you know, the squadron's initial mission was to do this big sweep out to the west and look at this uh, okay. route that was out there. And really okay. what it was about was, it was about kind of deflict, deconflicting traffic on the main uh, on the main roads going north. Because okay. the squadron at this point was huge. It was, you know, so typical like div cap squadron at that time with vehicles and aircraft was, was about 700 people, mm -hmm. 750 people, give or take. When we crossed the border with all the different elements that had been task organized into us, we were 1,240 sol 1,241 soldiers. We were wow. massive. And so wow. a big part of it was they wanted us to be able to move quickly and not be caught in the giant traffic jams yeah. that were on the highways going north. So we did this big swing out to the west, and that meant that we were, you know, driving through this moon dust and just, you know, caked in it. Um, we, you know, we, we laundered uh, outside of Samoa. There was some fighting there. Continued up along the Euphrates. We went across the Euphrates at one point. We were, uh, we were the, at one point, we were the only American units east of the Euphrates for a couple of days, which was Yeep. really lonely. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, and not a good time. Um, but, you know, that's, that's the way it was. Uh, came back across, um, laundered out towards the east, and then ultimately kind of shot up through the, the Karbala Gap. Uh, and then set ourselves up just across the Euphrates outside of Baghdad. Uh, and that was that was right about the time that the Thunder Runs were getting ready to start. So, I, so okay, before we talk about the Thunder Run specifically, I've been wondering since we started talking about this interview, what scout helicopters do in an armored assault, you know, essentially an armored penetration into a city because flying at rooftop level, you know, scouting, for a bunch of tanks does not sound like my idea of a good time. Yeah. So, you know, it's funny you mentioned that because this right about the same time was when uh, one of the Apache attack helicopter regiments was, you know, trying to do a deep attack and got absolutely spanked. I mean, their, their aircraft yeah. just got shredded. Um, and so as a result of that, the three ID commander made the decision that when the division pushed into Baghdad, that no helicopters of any kind were allowed over the city. Oh, wow. End of story. None whatsoever. Wow. Um, and, and of course, you know, cab guys love to kind of like kind of push the boundary and, you know, make sure. it try it. And, and it was made abundantly clear to us of, hey, man, the CG is not screwing around. Don't, yeah. don't push it. Huh. Time and a place it, for everything, right? I mean, yeah. it's just. So, yeah. So, so the aircraft are all kind of stuck west of the Euphrates. So we basically listened to the thunder runs going down 
uh, on the radio and, you know, we're hearing this fight happen and just like, oh my God, we should be in there. Meanwhile, the squadron is fighting on kind of the Western approaches yeah. uh, to Baghdad. Huge, huge, you know, big tank on tank battle there with um, Clay Lyle's Apache troop. Uh, and just, and again, all of this stuff is getting mixed up and we're sitting across uh, the Euphrates like, all right, man, anytime you want to let us in, we're, we're you know, we're here for Wow. It. Interesting. That's interesting. So, so any anything else stick out in your mind? I mean, sort of. I, it's hard to pin a pinpoint a day that the regime fell. Obviously, we all remember seeing the statue come down and and all that sort of thing. But any specific memories of or impressions? Like, it, you know, it from on TV from the safety of New York City. It seemed like oh, the statue fell, and then there was like maybe twelve hours of euphoria, and then total chaos. Yeah, I mean, I can I can absolutely pinpoint when the regime fell because there were two separate days, and on both of those days, I had had to do a convoy, a ground convoy into Baghdad to link up with folks in the squadron and do some coordination and handoff. And the first day was on the day that the regime fell, and there was you know nobody on the streets, and and everything was was quiet. You know, there were there were bodies all over the place from the fighting. Um, sure. It was it was like eerily quiet. The next day when we went out, man, it was it was freaking Black Friday at Walmart. Everybody was <laughs> grabbing stuff and carrying it around. And I saw, I will never forget this. I we were driving on the road and we come up on this truck and he's dragging something. And I'm looking at it and I'm trying to and I'm like looking at it and I realize this dude is dragging a propane tank on the ground. There are trucks coming off this thing. And I'm I tell my guy, I'm like, dude punch it we are getting around this guy i don't care if you have to do 70 on this road we are getting around this guy before he detonates in front of us i am not going to be here when this guy has a secondary explosion because he's an idiot and he's dragging a propane tank but yeah it was it was like flipping a switch between one day and the next it was totally different that's that's nuts man so what do you what do you spend the next i don't know how how well okay let's start by saying how long were you over there after that like okay okay we won and, yeah, and and then I, I don't know how long it, it took before, you know, winning, you know, they they had all the old mission accomplished banner, but at a certain point, you know, the, the concept of winning changed a little bit. But there was a there was a brief time in there when it's like, okay, we won. Like, t talk to me about what that's like. Like, what did that look like? Yeah, so I mean, so probably two days after the regime fell, um, we got word. We said, hey, we're consolidating all the aviation assets at uh, now Baghdad International Airport, yeah. uh, and the squadron's gonna gonna take over one of the little areas right on the side, so we were actually close to each other. So we went over, and I took over Iraqi Airways engine hangar, which was wild, um, and and that, you know, became my home for the next couple of months. Um, the really kind of, you know, speaking on this whole, hey, victory thing, um, you know, the Army was still very much in this kind of peacetime yeah. belt management mindset, and the rule at that time was you could not go over 24 months in command, period. End of the story. God. Like somebody would have to give up a kidney for you to do that. Well, there were a bunch of us in the squadron that had extended uh, yeah. because we were like, hey, we're we're not leaving our guys. We're, we're, yeah. uh, we're doing this. Um, and so within like two months after getting to Baghdad, the squadron commander changed out. Two of the line troop commanders changed out. And I changed out. 
Um, and because that was that was the rule. You were at 24 months and you had to change huh. out. And that was that was rough. that is that's nuts. I mean, I can't even imagine being a new captain walking into this squadron and it's like, hey, we just we just captured Baghdad, but oh by the way, you're in command. Here's the guide on. Yeah, yeah. Don't screw it up. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the saving grace for us as a squadron, I can't speak to other units. The saving grace for us as a squadron was it was all promotion from within, right? So all the folks that were taking over line troops were were folks who had been in like the S3 shop. Right. So okay. They had that credibility of, you know, they had fought yeah. through with everybody else. The guy that took over my troop uh, was actually a Chinook driver uh, from, who had been part of the part of the invasion force and was a maintenance guy and uh, took because they didn't have a Kiowa maintenance guy to take over for me. Old long story on that. Um, so, so at least those those folks who were taking over like had some credibility. They weren't, you know, coming straight from the rear detachment. Because yeah, that would have been yeah, brutal. That's that's wild, man. Unbelievable. So, did they send you home? Like, what did you do? Yeah. So they so I changed command, and four days later, uh, I was in Kuwait, and three days after that, uh, I was home. That is nuts. That's got to be one of the what? Right, go to grass. It's wild. That's got to be one of the craziest things. Yeah, that's got to be one of the craziest things I've ever heard. So, how long were you over there? Six, seven months? Uh, hold on. I mean, don't get me wrong. Six months is a long time, but that's freaking nuts. Not, not when you compare it to like dudes who did the surge, right? Yeah. Compare it to fifteen, yeah. months, twelve months. Yeah, no, I, look, I, I'll be the first one to own it. Mine was a pretty short combat tour. That's, uh, well, listen, I mean, I don't think we need to compare days or whatever, but that's, uh, I mean, if you got to, if you got to do it, that's the way to do it, man. Let me, let me get all the, all the plaudits and then go home and go to grad school. That's congratulations. That's pretty good. So Mindy's home. She pregnant still? Yeah. So this is the crazy, uh, so this is the crazy thing. Um, Mindy gave birth to our son in late October. Yeah. Uh, okay. He was actually a week late um, because she had given birth on his due date. She would have had to deploy with the main body of the division under the postpartum rules at that point, the four months <laughs> postpartum. But because he was a week late, um, she stayed with the rear detachment. Uh, so That's insane, too. I appreciate his sense of timing. That's, oh my God, that's nuts too. Here, congratulations on having your kid. Now go to war. Here's your M16. Now get your ass to war and get Oh man. Wow. <laughs> I mean, wow. Yeah. All right. Uh, so let's, let's turn the page. Um, we're home. We see, so you, you see the uniforms. Tell me about your emotions, man. They're, they're honoring this thing that you did. Um, I mean, obviously a lot of our friends were there. Um, but tell me tell me about tell me about it yeah i mean i was so excited i you know anybody who's been in the first c club knows that i've been banging the drum for a three id uniform forever <laughs> and um i genuinely thought and and you and i you know talked about this earlier i genuinely thought that when they did a three id uniform that it was going to be like the audie murphy BSD yeah. type thing right that iconic just unbelievable uh route of heroism and, and what he did and so when I saw when I saw the preview, the, the little teaser trailer that they put out, and I heard the dog barking, and I saw the desert, and I'm like, "Oh man, they're the ID, and it's OIF one." And I yeah. like, I had to like take a moment because it was just a flood. You know, it's it's like yeah. the prop said of you know you don't think about being part of history, but then you look back and you're like, "Wow, that was yeah. 
Yeah. That was different. That was something yeah. nobody's ever done before. That's crazy, man. Um, so, okay, let's, let's turn the page. I, you, you retired from the army. Uh, I know you've written a couple of books. Um, I don't know that I would call any of them bestsellers, but some of them have had a pretty substantial impact in the army. Uh, tell me, tell me what you're doing now. And, you know, don't spare the flattery. Like, remember that recruits listen to this show and that they want to know what they might do with themselves if they find themselves in this position. Yeah, so real quick, kind of fast forward, I flew Kiowas for a total of 12 years, uh, had a medical issue, had to move out of aviation branch. The, uh, the Army frowns on its pilots getting dizzy in the cockpit. Who knew? Yeah, go for it. Uh, yeah, and so, so I moved into a functional area. I was an Army strategist for eight years, had an absolute blast. Um, during that time, had gotten to teach uh, in the history department at West Point and then work on the dean staff, and then got selected for a permanent faculty position came back, served out those remaining six years uh, as permanent faculty, uh, running some of the academy's leader, uh, leader development and then faculty development efforts, uh, ultimately retired in, uh, summer, in summer of 21. Uh, when, when both my wife and I retired, we moved out to Arizona because that's what you do when you retire is you move to someplace that's warm with a bunch of old people. And <laughs> I don't like humidity. It was Arizona instead of Florida. That, that wow. worked out. Cool. Uh, so I'm learning my own business right now. I'm doing educational games uh, coaching, which basically means that I help uh, folks who want to use games in their classroom and, you know, games, digital games, tabletop games, role playing, you name it. I'm, I'm down for it. Uh, anybody who wants to use games in their classroom but don't really know how to do it, I, I work with them and help them kind of make that leap because I think it's just a great tool for experiential learning in the classroom. Yeah, it really is. I so you you really did have the dream job there at West Point as a permanent professor. You and Tanya both, and uh, and your wife too, Mindy, that as the as the dirt professor there. And then you know you got your own thing. Um, tell us about the Army's Guide to Mentoring because I know that that's a passion project. Yeah, absolutely. So when I so you know everybody, if you're going to be permanent faculty, you have to go get a doctorate. So I went and got a doctorate in learning technologies, and as part of that, I did my doctoral dissertation on army mentoring and specifically looking at army mentoring and online communities. And since no self-respecting officer is ever going to read a doctoral dissertation because <laughs> the style of writing is just brutally painful, uh, I said, all right, I'm going to rewrite this into a book that army officers are actually going to read. And that's what I did. I, I spent about six months and rewrote the dissertation and restructured it. Uh, published uh, the, the Army Officer's Guide to Mentoring through uh, what was then the Center for the Advancement of Leader Development and Organizational Learning. A um, couple of years later, after getting just poke after poke after poke from my NCOs of, hey, sir, what about us? You know, don't, don't yeah. we get a book about mentoring? Too? Yeah, yeah. I, I did some follow-up research and did the Army NCO's Guide to Mentoring. Couldn't find a publisher for that. Ended up self-publishing it. And just recently in the last year, both books have gotten picked up uh, by a group called Mentor Military. So if you ever, when you go into clothing sales and you see all the like professional development books that are there, the counseling guides and inventory guides, Mentor Military are the folks who publish those. Uh, and so I was super excited when they reached out to me because that was always my goal was, hey, I, I want to have my book there in the yeah. BX. I want it accessible. Yeah. And, and so that's what happened uh, this last year. They published it. Uh, they did. We did a new edition. I did a rework preface and also redid some stuff in the books that I'd always kind of wanted to change. And so now it's available on a shelf at an exchange near you. 
Dude, that is awesome. I did not know that. That is awesome. Good for you. I Yeah, I sort of had this like, in my mind, this idea of like FM 700-3-4, you know, Ray Kimball's guide to being a mentor. And uh, that's this is that's so much more interesting than than what I had in my head. And, and uh, so that's that's awesome. Good for you, man. All right, uh, Rob, you want to tell us, take us through this this next section, talking about the uh, uniform reveal here. Yeah, so the uniform reveal uh, for me, I was I was hoping, you know, of course, I'm by no means a history buff at all, but I figured we did first ID. I was expecting third ID probably next year. I was thinking second ID and like trying to do the light mech imperative, you know. So I was looking at uh, first and the twenty third infantry, and the reason why I say one, two, three for those of you guys that don't know, that was the first infantry battalion to circumnavigate the globe. If you look at their crest, you see the two little boats flying around the the, the globe, and it's a white color, so for, made great for an away jersey, which was what I was thinking, as well as uh, there's a tie to the Army football team because Pete Dawkins, Eisman Trophy winner, was a battalion commander of 1st of the 23rd Infantry, and it's kind of derivative of the 1st Infantry Division, which was the 1st Division in World War II. And if you've seen We Were Soldiers, 123 was the initial battalion and that was reflagged in the first calf so it kind of fits with all the other uniforms that have kind of been out there so history department if you're listening first of the 23rd infantry would be a great option that well because it has a very very strong tie to west point but it also links to all the other some many of the other uh, organizations that are out there but uh you know for me you know i tell everybody it, the running joke was if you were a grunt you wouldn't what it nowhere near third ID unless you were on the Savannah side. Cause if you were at the Fort Benning side, that means you lost your job and you were, you know, doing details. Like you always wanted to see the, the, the <laughs> finest Bradley platoon leader in third of the third was a Lieutenant a year before. And he's like teaching platoon level tactics to a bunch of brand new lieutenants in the army the following year. So it was like, Ooh, third ID kind of makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up unless you were in Savannah you know, better location and way better, you know, way better organization as well. But uh, I was super excited. Uh, like I always dig the uniforms. And, and again, cheap plug for those of you guys that are wearing the 82nd jersey and you want to get rid of it, like help a paratrooper out because I have been trying to find one of those. The, the secondary market is super expensive. So if somebody wants to hook me up, I got a little something for you. If we can make a trade or some type of deal. Dan back over to you. What were your thoughts on, on the whole thing? Yeah, I got surprisingly emotional seeing one of my old units recognized as well. And I obviously don't have quite as deep a tie as Ray. You know, I was I was there for the first three years of my Army career, though. And, uh, you know, on one level, every time I put that stuff on, it's like, oh, yeah, of course I'm putting on third ID gear. Like, obviously, I'm going to put on third ID gear. Like, that's, that's one of my units, um, the one I spent the most time in. But it's also wild. Like, it's also surreal. So um, I like the design a lot. Like, the jerseys themselves, especially when I first saw them, I thought were a little plain, um, you know, without the patches. But the total package taken together, like the helmet and the, and the lettering on the pants and everything, the whole total package taken together is amazing. Um, and, and while we're talking about it, like, I feel sort of the same way about the Navy ones. I like that they're honoring the actual Navy. Uh, but those jerseys are freaking super, super plain. I mean, it's just black with white lettering. Which okay, good. It's it's on point with a submarine, but if you just buy them off the Navy website, man, it's like getting a champions junior varsity practice jersey. I mean, that's that's not great. And then airbrushing the helmets is always going to be like a weird Navy thing for me. But Ray, you're you're the special guest, man. Tell us tell us your thoughts. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, I'll agree that the, the jersey felt a little plain to me, too. So, you know, in grand cap tradition, I did a couple uh, see of presentations. And yeah, that's a good one. I dug up one of my old name tapes from my DCU <laughs> uniform, and my amazing wife sewed it on there. So, I don't uh, know. Good looking out. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I'm incredibly lucky that I, you know, I've now gotten to have uh, jerseys from both of my tack witnesses, right? From 10th Mountain and from 3ID. And and the reality is no one's ever going to make one for headquarters ISAF in Afghanistan. So I'm, I'm really going to have to be content uh, with, with what I've got here. Um, I am I am a little bit bummed. You know, they, they've got some of the, the maneuver battalions that they honor as, as part of this. I'm, I'm a little bummed that 3-7 Cav was not one of those. So the next time the history department does a reunion, I'm going to have to pick a fight with the uniform team. You know, that's yeah, I I was waiting for them to uh, roll out the Tuskers, you know, because I was in four six four, and I was waiting for them to roll out the the regimental crests, especially that that Tuskers crest is like super unique, and they didn't do that, and I was like, uh, missed opportunity there. Yeah, I know I, one of our classmates I know, Jay Maselli, is is yeah, be not gonna be happy, but uh, I haven't talked to him about it yet. The one thing that I really would have liked to see, setting aside my whole partisan unit unit affiliation. I really would have loved to see a Rocky the Bulldog cap or beanie, similar to what they did with the Pando Commando in 10th Mountain. I, that that would have just sold like hotcakes, and I think it would have looked really cool. But, yeah. you know, the reality is that would have either required a lot of extra kind of legal gymnastics or yeah. extra licensing fee to Disney. So, you know, yeah. I'll, I'll let it be. So we got a comment here. Um I love the minimalist look Nike usually goes for. Under Armour never gets the balance right. Um, you know, and especially with that helmet color. So, yeah, I, like I said, I, I, it, well, these things have grown on me and I pulled this thing out of the box and I was like, wow, that's freaking cool. And, and I'm obviously wearing it now and I like it. I'm not going to go dig up one of my name tapes. Although the thing with the, uh, the calf, that's, a, that's a good idea. I might, I might dig up one of my four, six, four, um, regimental pens and stick on here. We'll see. Anyway, uh, Ray, thanks for having us on. We already did a read for the mailing list. So um, let me just close this out by saying that my favorite thing this week is that we've got championship football this weekend. Uh, the Commander-in-Chief's Trophy is up for grabs in two weeks. We're going to deep dive on the actual football game itself. But this week it was a chance for us to have, you know, one of my longtime very good friends uh, talk about the thing that we're honoring here with the Army-Navy game. And, you know, again, it's like the Army's crazy. It, it's the, the top line thing is dudes – sort of in you know in tanks in kicking down doors whatever but it's a huge organization and america's strength on the battlefield has always been the logistics and its ability to sort of make sure that the people got the stuff that they need right and it's true that you get to be a platoon leader as a west point graduate and be in the front but you spend an awful lot of time doing other stuff as well and i'm glad we got a chance to talk about that because that's that that's what matters and yeah. this idea that i don't know whatever whatever popular culture idea you had like it's you know you're an like it's crazy because you know you went to war twice but i think of you as like one of the most intellectual people i've ever met you know and and so um you know yeah dude declined a scholarship to uva i don't know how many people do that to go to west point so that that's pretty cool anyway ray like i said thank you very much for coming on um uh, Rob, you got anything else before we close out here? Yeah, just just real quick, Ray. Thanks for coming on. And I'll say thank you for your service. And, and to all those that are listening out there that are 
contemplating going to West Point. It's not always, it's, it's a great place to start. That's the first thing that I will tell anybody about serving in the military is try it out, right? You don't have to do 20 years. You don't have to do 25 years. Give yourself the opportunity to learn something new and yeah. stretch yourself because, you know, the, the greatest reward that you will ever have, and some of us were lucky enough to do that, is to lead soldiers in combat. That doesn't happen for everyone. You know, and so when you find the opportunity to talk to somebody that actually got to do that, pick their brain a little bit, because again, it's not always like the running and gunning part. That's the easy part because you train for that all the time. It's, hey, um, we've got this vehicle that the tires have burned and melted to the road. Like, how do we fix this problem? Like, that is a problem that you will never see in training, but I can assure you that your battalion commander will look at you one day and be like, hey, guys we've got to fix this and I don't know how to do it, you know? And so like now all of a sudden you're like, Hey, I need to find a heavy equipment crane. Do we have something like that in the inventory? Well, we've got an 88, but there's only one 88. If that thing goes down, then we're really screwed. Cause then I need three heavy recovery vehicles to pull that thing out. And so it's always interesting to, to be able to pick people's brains and understand that two, two other points that I'll leave you guys with is uh, for every single shooter that there is in the army, there's, 12 to 16 supporters, right? So for every one guy that's on the X, there's 16 people that are supporting that person to get there, whether that be planes, trains, and automobiles, bullets, contractors, ship drivers, aircraft, whatever. Those are very, very important aspect of it. And then the other piece of it is, and I know Ray has heard this before, tactics are for amateurs, logistics are for professionals. So if you truly want to master your craft, as an officer in the army, or even as an NCO, you've got to be able to do both sides because being technically and tactically proficient only gets you about to the 10 year mark. After that 10 year mark, you're going to spend a hell of a lot more time whipping the keyboard. And the better you are at whipping the keyboard, the more logistics you understand, or the more staff work you understand, the faster you get back to those fun jobs. And so there's a balance there, but making sure that you can do that balance is very, very important. But again, thanks a lot for coming on the show. I'm Rob, your host, coming out of Fayetteville, North Carolina. Got Dano Ikebesa out of coastal Connecticut. And we've got Ray Kimball coming to you out of Arizona, where I guess that's where all the retired people go, or that in Florida. But uh, really appreciate you coming on the show, giving us a little bit of your time and talking about uh, the Thunder Run, because that is an exciting thing. And uh, I'll have to tell you this, the, the Kiowa story offline uh, about my experience with those guys when, when we went forward. But uh, thanks again for coming on the show. And as always, be Navy. Thanks for listening to the As for Football Army Football Show. Tune in next week as the As for Football team brings you more Army football and American conference analysis. We would like to thank our patrons, particularly the Firsty Club, for supporting the show. If you're interested in joining the Firsty Club, go to patreon.com and search for As for Football. You can access more content on our website by signing up for our mailing list at asforfootball.com forward slash subscribe. Thanks for listening to the Army Football Show. And as always, beat Navy.